Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been listening to the show and enjoying it and happen to do so on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review for the show five star reviews are extremely appreciated but more than anything i want to know what you think so i can better serve my audience and i want you to let others know that uh, this is a podcast worth listening to so when that perspective peace corps volunteer types in peace corps podcasts they can hear your take on my show On this week's episode, I talk with Dana Platon, who served in Ecuador. And I hope you guys listened to last week's episode, where I talked to David Hernandez, who also served in Ecuador. Because one of the things that I love about this podcast is the opportunity to talk to two volunteers who served in the same country uh, at different times, and just how varied their experiences can be. Uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, Dana did some amazingly cool stuff while she was a Peace Corps volunteer, and her service to Ecuador and the Peace Corps did not end once she COS'd. I think you guys are going to just really be energized by this story. So without further ado, here is the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. I'm Dana Platon, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Dana. How are you doing? Hi, Tyler. Good. How are you? Doing well. And I I mentioned it uh, to you before we formally started the interview, but I will say it as well to the listeners. There is construction happening uh, in the apartment right next to me. So if anybody hears uh, banging and loud noises or a saw going off, uh, that would be it. But I think we'll be able to to handle it because I've done an interview in Thailand on the side of the road and dealing with that noisiness. So I think we can manage uh, in my apartment. But I am excited to hear all about your experience and uh, the many, many years that you were involved in the Peace Corps in one form or fashion. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. I'm really excited and thankful for the project you're working on and what you're bringing forth and just to be invited to be a part of it. So excited to uh, share this space with you. Okay. Well, thank you. Let's start off by letting the listeners know a little bit about you. Uh, Where did you serve in the Peace Corps? When and what was your general assignment as a volunteer? Yeah, so my name is Dana Platon again, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer from 1997 through February of 2000. So I did almost three years in a small, tiny community called Kitugo, located in Ecuador, which is in the northern Andes of Ecuador, about two hours south of the Colombia border. And 
I was living at about 9,000 feet elevation, and I was placed in what was called the youth development program. So it's more like a community development um, Peace Corps volunteer working with um, youth and trying to determine what are the needs and priorities of that community and then to uh, work together with those folks to address them. So more of a generalist type background. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and with that, the community, you know, indigenous community and rural impoverished area, their first language is Quechua and second language is Spanish. And I wound up working mostly with the girls and women doing more work along the lines of leadership development, community health, education, and small business development. Yeah. Okay. And what turned you on to the Peace Corps? How did you find out about Peace Corps? Was this something that you had wanted to do for many years or found out uh, and then pretty soon after you were applying? Yeah. So I went to my undergrad to college at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. And as I was finishing up my degree in social work, I was interested in the Peace Corps, didn't know much about, um, you know, would I be qualified to get in? Where would I go? I lacked language skills. I lacked technical skills. So I had an interest in it. And there was like a recruiter that came on campus to talk more about it. So I decided to throw my name in the hat. And it was interesting because within five months, I was able to get an invitation and uh, lined up with a summer start. So um, super excited about it. But I actually went in with just no expectations and a lot of self-doubt, just feeling like, you know, what does this 23-year-old really have to give? Very little life experience and a lack of technical skills. But uh, took a leap of faith and went for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably a healthier way to approach it of trying to really understand like how, what, what am I going to be able to provide rather than thinking, Oh, I've got this. I can, I can really help this community when you, as you said, you know, you're 23 years old, fresh out of undergrad, you did have a degree in social work. So I feel that that probably helped in community engagement and, and working with them. But, uh, it's always hard for a, a volunteer coming in, trying to figure out what is their place and what can they really do for the community that they're trying to serve. Oh, totally. Totally. And I think, you know, the two year commitment is is just so essential. I know going into it, I felt like that's going to be a really long time. But going in as a generalist and without all the skills it took me a good year to really, you know, gain some serious competence in the language skills, as well as the technical, as well as building credibility and trust. So I, I felt like if I would have known that going into it, like, it's okay. You know, you don't have to have all the skills, et cetera. You've got a two year period of time. Um, and, and to be able to adapt and really to become more effective, um, as a volunteer, but going into it, you know, I was definitely, I was definitely scared and, and, uh, doubting, you know, my abilities to be able to, um, do some good work. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's probably safe to say that you didn't have a background in Quechua before going, but did you know Spanish uh, prior to arriving? I did not. So I didn't. I was actually um, a good friend in my group and myself. We were a training class of 
think about 35 from what I remember. And we were in the lowest like level of, of um, the Spanish class. So I did not have any Spanish. I think I had, you know, my high school Spanish, but when they tested me, I think I did the numbers and colors um, and that was about it. So my self-esteem was definitely down. And, um, you know, I said, all right, we got to get started. And I was placed with a host family. So, you know, I fully believe in that because just being fully immersed and, and living with those guys for like 10 to 12 weeks, I just absorbed so much and, and jumped like five levels by the end of our training. So I was at like an intermediate level of Spanish, um, you know, over my first three months um, which really helped. Uh, but then I wound up in a Quechua speaking uh, community that the little ones and the elders didn't speak Spanish, just the youth did. So I was trying to then learn Quechua through Spanish and um, took a while. It took a while and um, I got the basics down, um, but it was a very challenging language. And I was able to use my Spanish when working with the youth, for sure, and with some of the adults. But again, the elders and the little ones, they didn't speak Spanish. So I really had to meet them halfway and at least gain, you know, a basic understanding and communication of, of Quechua. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that actually mirrors my experience perfectly. Um, but substituting in French for Spanish and Jula for Quechua. Uh, so there I definitely, <laughs> I definitely understand what you were, were going through. You learn one language over training and then get sent to a community and realize, oh, wait, this is not going to be as useful as I thought. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting because in, in Ecuador, they speak Quechua and then in Peru and Bolivia, it's Quechua. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is it's the vowels that are different. Like the Quechua language uses just U-I-A um, in a lot of their words. Um, so when I've traveled to Peru and I've heard Quechua, there's a lot of similarities, but uh, some differences still as well. Okay. Would you yeah. say it's a, would a, a halfway decent analogy be sort of British English and American English, or that's still not getting to the, the point there of, of the difference? Oh, I wouldn't know that much. <laughs> my my Kichwa definitely was very basic. Um, but yeah, I could, you know, at one point I was able to like understand some of it, but mm-hmm. again, never effective in fully teaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good, the good thing is the work I did was focused on the youth and the women that did speak Spanish. So I was able to, um, you know, communicate that way, but it was more, you know, just being in a community meeting, everything was in Kichwa. Or when I was with the families and they would converse with each other, you would hear it in Quechua as well. So it was just, you know, really hard to to try to figure things out in Spanish and then in this second language. Um, so again, my almost three years with the Peace Corps was well worth it and well needed. There's no way you could have done something like this in three months. Um, it just took time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- as people are starting to think of your service, Ecuador, people might think, oh, yeah. she was in, in Ecuador, maybe on the beach, it's tropical. But you said, no, you were in the mountains, 9,000 feet. So very different environment than being on the beach. What was your community like? Yeah, yeah. So my community, tiny community of about about 200 people. So rural community. And we were, again, I think I mentioned about 9,000 feet elevation 
and amongst like 15 to 16,000 foot volcanoes like around the community. So definitely um, the air was quite thin and you could drive about four hours and drop down to the coast, you know, and be in that environment or five hours east and be in the rainforest. So it was interesting. I was in what was called the highlands area of Ecuador and the northern part of it. So tiny little community, a lot of poverty. You know, we lacked the basic resources. We didn't have a small school in our community. We didn't have a health clinic, um, limited electricity. And we had one little, what's called a casa comuna, like a little small community center where the community would gather uh, for meetings or for any kind of community projects. But I worked in little um, smaller communities surrounding my community. I would hike out and work at one of the rural schools each day and then other communities where I was doing work as well. So I was, um, you know, moving around a little bit as well. But our community right there didn't have all the resources that I had thought as a Peace Corps volunteer I'd have access to. Um, You know, I wasn't partnered with a nonprofit or a small organization. I was just partnered directly with the community um, and and really tasked with um, go forth and <laughs> figure it out based on the direction the community wants to go. Um, so that was hard. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you yeah. said that your, your community was only about 200 people? Yes. Wow. Because I was yeah, partnered with, with an orga- organization, but it was an organization of women that was over 200 women. Yeah, yeah. Mine was a tiny, tiny little rural community. So, you know, I think the benefits was like, I got to know everybody really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, it was just a very small group of people. um, And not everybody was really interested in working with a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, Not Mm -hmm. everybody invited Peace Corps in. You had a couple of leaders that demonstrated interest and worked with the Peace Corps to get them a volunteer in the community um, and others were, were not interested. Um, and the interest was to have a male volunteer, not a female. I was told that upon arrival. Okay. And did they explain, yep. explain why they, they felt that way or it was just matter of fact, we asked for a man. They, they basically explained to me that they were, Um, what they were interested in was for me to be able to do agro business type work. And they didn't believe a woman could do that. And they had asked for a man, but Peace Corps had sent me to then work in youth development. (laughs) So, you know, that was the, uh, the grand welcome in the beginning with some of the um, male leaders in the community. So um, one of the things that many years later drove me to actually work for the Peace Corps uh, to really look at site development and the criteria we use to partner with uh, communities, which could talk about later on. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was from my own experience showing up somewhere that some of the folks actually weren't interested, um, which um, which was a bummer, but I was able to really figure out and identify some of the informal leaders and other folks to partner with that truly did want um some positive changes for their community. And, um, and we worked together on that, but the initial arrival and whatnot, you know, quite a challenge. I can imagine. Yeah. Yep. Now, were you living with a host family or on, on your own, uh, in this community? I was, 
Yeah, I had a li- I had my own place, but I also had my host family. Um, it was, you know, I would say they're my family up until today. So I spent a lot of time with with this family. Um, we worked together. They wound up becoming like my uh, Peace Corps counterparts, you know, the individuals that you really reported to and worked with every day. Um, and we're still in touch to this day. So a little bit of both. Okay. And I guess let's get into your service as a volunteer, what exactly you were doing. Do you have a a favorite project that that just because either it was a, a amazing success or you learned a lot from it, just the experience of going through it, do you have a favorite project that you did during your time? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, like I was talking about some of the general like community development each day I would work at a rural school and I'd work with um, the little ones like grades first through six on a variety of different topics. And that would be, you know, the mornings. But in the afternoon, I would go back to my community and it was just kind of a quiet afternoon. And my understanding was I was going to be working more with the women and doing some community health work. And each day, you know, I'd wait at that Casa Comunal for the women and no one would show like they just weren't coming. Yet these little girls kept showing up saying, you know, we're interested in working. We'll do community health. And I kept kind of turning them away, saying, no, I'm not supposed to really be doing community health with you all. It's really your parents that, you know, the idea with the women. And these girls just kept following me around on my heels and it finally got to a point where I started to realize, like, I need to let these girls lead me. You know, I, I thought I had everything figured out and what I should be doing. And it was one of those aha moments where I'm like, let's see about forming a youth group, doing some after school activities um, and really working with the girls, viewing them as the next generation of leaders um, as it was just challenging with some of the adults. And I'd say my favorite project was the new seed project. And in Quechua, that's called Mushu Muyu. And basically the idea was, you know, how can we plant seeds now um, to pave the way for the next generation of girls? So I think what was really interesting is every day we would meet and we would work and we worked on a variety of topics. And a lot of it can stem down to leadership work and self-esteem work and decision-making. And we did... Um, we wound up then building that into a small business development project. But these girls were just so hungry to learn and to come together and gather. And it wasn't something that was going on before, nor was it a direct ask of the community. It's something that just came to be. And I think that came to be through just the basic um, hanging out, integrating, getting to know them, getting to know the families, these are the ones who, you know, just kept showing up and kept wanting to do the work. And I think for me, the biggest lesson learned out of that project and why I loved it so much was I was so set in my ways thinking it has to be a certain way with a certain number of people and they need to be older where um, sometimes your, your quiet informal leaders are right there in front of you. And these could be people down the line that, you know, wind up leading some of their community initiatives. Um, so I'd say it was one of my favorite projects because I loved working with the girls. Um, again, not so much what I was capable or teaching them, but more what I learned from them. 
um, and the ability to just, just kind of, um, kind of be, you know, and, and learn from these little leaders for sure. I I absolutely love that. I feel that the best projects aren't really the ones that volunteers come up with, that they just kind of happen. You're, you're, you're there, you're interacting in your community, you're just hanging out. And all of a sudden you find yourself doing a project that you didn't even realize you were doing until you're halfway into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, there were so many challenges and, and I think for me, when I got in the community, it's very easy to see all that's wrong, all the poverty, all the domestic violence, all the abuse, all the discrimination, you see a lot and it's overwhelming. And you, you don't always see some of those bright lights and, and some of the potential of what can be. And these girls were that, and they were so patient with me and never in my face saying, you need to do this, or you need to do that. They would just giggle and hang with me and follow me around. And it was like, when I was ready, they were like, okay, she's ready. Now we're ready. And I think some of the greatest challenges we saw in the community um, and some of the things that really fired me up became the work we wound up doing, you know, on education around women's and girls' rights and gender equity um, and really, you know, creating spaces in the school, like how can you um, create some more of that gender equity and and increase the participation of the girls, et cetera. And again, so never went in with any of these plans. It was a little bit of seeing what was going on, um, feeling powerless to be able to address it, but then having the right little partners um, to take it on one step at a time, you know, not moving mountains overnight and doing anything too radical, but again, using education as a tool to start raising awareness with the boys, with the girls, with the parents. Um, and Mushumuyu became, you know, that driving force, the new seed of, um, again, just my, my most favorite project when I was there. Mm-hmm. And what challenges did you have, or what were some of your, I guess, least favorite aspects of being a volunteer? You already said right when you got there, uh, you were confronted by some of the leaders in the community saying, you know, you're not who we wanted, uh, but you overcame that. Were there other challenges that you faced throughout your service? Yeah, I think a little bit of what I was just sharing was living in an environment where there was just a real high percentage of um, abuse and domestic violence and discrimination Mm -hmm. and it was somewhat considered normal mm-hmm. that there was not an acceptance, but it just is what it is. Um, and that a lot of the women in my community had just, had just been raised to believe that they just didn't really have that worth. And if bad things happen, it was their fault. And, um, there was just, again, um, a lot of violence. So I think that was one of my biggest challenges was coming into that situation feeling like this is just wrong. Um, can we begin to talk about this in a safe space? And there was no safe space. The way we're raised in the U.S., we create these safe spaces very different um, in other parts of the world. So I'd say it was one of my biggest challenges in in which um, if we wanted to move things forward, yet we weren't able to, to kind of start addressing this and at least raise awareness, I, I just felt like, you know, what, what can I do here? Um, and again, the solution then became 
partnering with others that actually didn't believe that um, they didn't have worth. And it was more just something people didn't talk about and just accepted. So once we started to partner and organize with the women and with the girls and invite the men and the boys in, we started to actually see some shifts and some changes. Um, So one of the biggest challenges definitely became one of my biggest driving forces um, all the way to some of the work I do today. So, um, yeah. And as you were working to empower these women and shift the conversation or even allow there to be conversation, how, how did you do that? Were, were they just, just being there and just having the conversations or were there kind of activities that you used to maybe get them talking or, or thinking? Break that down for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So the, Ecuadorian constitution has a code of women's rights. It existed and it just hadn't arrived to our tiny rural community. So there was um, legislation out there. So basically I got one of the little girls, Anita and her mother, Rosalena, who were um, two of two of the individuals I did a lot of work with during Peace Corps. And I said, would you be willing to like host a lunch for International Women's Day on March 8th, 1999? And what if we gather and we invite um, as many people as we can in the community and we read and we review and we have conversation around the code of women's rights? And they love the idea and they were right on it. And Anita, who was nine at the time, translated it in from Spanish to Quichua for the individuals that didn't really speak Spanish. And her mother then did the Spanish overview. So it just became a huge gathering of people. And I'd say definitely the tipping point of my service where people came together to talk about the code of women's rights. And I think that was able to spark right there. So again, just having that knowledge, just have an understanding that this actually exists. What does it mean? Um, and where do we see ourselves down the line? How do you want your daughters to be viewed in society and treated? How do you, you know, boys want your sisters to be viewed and treated, et cetera. So I'd say that was like the first step, Tyler, on, on getting things going. Um, so we weren't doing like, you know, big women's marches, things like that. But I think having the dialogue, having the conversation, um, was the first step, um, in the community for sure. And, you know, another thing that I wound up doing, you know, with some of the teachers that I worked with in the rural schools was having the same conversation with them in the classroom. Um, A lot of times the kids, when they would participate, if they got the answer wrong, they would be like disciplined, yelled at something like that. So a lot of times the girls would just stay quiet. They would not participate at all. And a lot of the boys would, they'd jump in there, they'd raise their hands, et cetera. And for the teachers, it was very easy to just call on the boys or basically anybody who raises your hand, you know, they would call on them, but the girls, I know they weren't doing that. So we started working with the teachers a little bit also, like what are some strategies um, to help increase the girls' participation and to really focus more on the effort versus the outcome. 
So it's not so much if they got the answer right or wrong, but it's the fact that they're actually trying. And that's the first step also. So a lot of times the teachers would want to, again, just call on the first person who raises their hand. So we did a little bit of work on facilitation strategies and classroom management on how you can get um, others to also, you know, to thank the person who's always participating and then, and then call on some of the girls, Hey, you know, do you want to help as well? It took some time, Tyler, just because of the fear of getting things wrong. Um, So it took a little bit of time and we wound up introducing like a childhood memory of my own, like star charts, where you could actually reward for um, participation and and just, you know, color in a couple stars every time someone would um, participate. And it really served as like a motivational tool for the girls to start to see um, those stars, you know, line up. And, you know, we had to come up with a prize and it was usually like banana bread or something you could bake and afford on a Peace Corps, you know, salary. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a tool that was effective in helping to like create that space for a little more gender equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you were having these conversations, did anything come up that surprised you that you didn't expect? Um, I think just once we started having the conversations, we um, started learning more and more about um, different people's situations, you know, where I would never come out directly and ask very specific questions. But I think confidence started and trust started to build that some of the women would just share more of like some of their personal challenges and whatnot. Um, you know, and, and I think, so I would learn more about them and where they're at. And I think with the girls, it was just a little bit more having them, um, kind of just like dream big. Like they would start sharing a little bit more about, you know, one day, I would love to do X or do something different with my life. I would hear a little bit more about that once they were given permission um, to kind of dream big. And the norm in my community was the majority of women, the adults were pulled from elementary school by third grade. So most of them were low literate to illiterate and they were sent to the big city to be maids. And that was kind of what the girls, um, were raised to believe they would be doing as well, that you'll go to school just for a couple of years, but it's really the sons that were being kept in school to be educated and the girls were being pulled and their future would be um, go work in the big city, you know, for a wealthier family as a maid. Um, So that was kind of the path forward for them. And, you know, with this small group of Mushu Muyu and, and the women I work with, we were really trying to promote education and, please allow the girls to continue in school and having an educated girl is going to give her more opportunities later in life. Um, so I think those are some of the conversations that you know, we learned about and whatnot um, of what some of their future is, what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And as you were there, were you starting to really see the shift happen, seeing women taking uh, more, more leadership roles or doing things that, I guess, wasn't typical for the community prior to these conversations starting to happen? That's a good, that's a good question for sure. Um, 
thinking back now, yeah, in the moment, I probably wouldn't have realized it. But yes, like the girls started to take ownership of the youth group and planning what would we be doing weekly and who would be included. And the women that I was involved with as well, they were taking a little bit more leadership in the community as well. And, um, you know, something like a side-by-side experience that was going on during my Peace Corps service, I'd mentioned earlier, you know, we're in the Andes and I lived amongst these volcanoes. I, um, I'm a mountaineer, so I started doing a lot of mountaineering in the Andes and in Ecuador during my time there. And when I would go climbing, you know, the women, they knew I was climbing and they were always interested about my climbs and what I was doing. And they kept proposing to me like, Hey, take us with you. We want to go with you. And I was like, what, how are we going to do that? Where are we going to get the funding? How are we going to get the resources? Are you all trained? You know, et cetera. And, um, you know, just didn't, just didn't think it was a great idea at one point. And I think some of the shift and, and some of the, um, their own leadership started to happen. They they were like, no, we want to go. And they kept pushing and pushing um, till eventually we um, put together the first expedition of indigenous women to climb to the summit of Cotopaxi. It's a volcano in Ecuador. It's about 19,347 feet. And, you know, we didn't know if we were going to actually summit it or not. But the goal was to just get out there and together, you know, work as a team, challenge ourselves, push ourselves out of our comfort zone um, and and just do things that maybe weren't always that traditional in in doing, you know, just the fact they wanted to go. I said, I'll support you on it. Let's give it a shot. Um, So one of my best friends, another Peace Corps volunteer, her name's Kate Stevens. She lived about two, two and a half hours away from me. And she was my climbing partner. So her and I would climb all these peaks together and um, came together for this. And she had a couple women from her community and I had some women mine and, and we went out and we did this big climb and we wound up summiting and they became the first indigenous women in the history of Ecuador to have been recorded to summit the peak. And it was very exciting and, and emotional and that day. But what we didn't realize was the changes that were going to happen six months later. And I think that goes back to your question on some of the shifts or changes I had seen. It was six months later that Rosalena, one of the women um, on our rope team, she became the first female president of her community um, after the uh, climb and then one of the other women, Doña Isabel, she was in a very um, abusive relationship for many years, and she made her own decision to divorce and um, raise her children on her own. And both of the women attested it to their ability to climb this big peak and navigate, um, you know, nineteen thousand feet, you know, above sea level. Um, navigate around these crevasses and be able to do that and find the physical and mental strength that they felt, why can't we take those teachings off the mountain and apply it in our lives, you know, back in our communities. And um, so that was definitely um, another outcome that the women felt came from, you know, that, that actual mountaineering experience. 
And it just didn't end there. They just, you know, it continued to flourish and continued to grow and, and help, you know, somewhat inspire and empower other girls and other women from their experience. So it wasn't the Peace Corps volunteers doing, it was these local women's doing that then kind of um, dominoed for others. Yeah, well, it's a big one. <laughs> uh, y- yes, indeed. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, I mean, I did. I taught karate in my village. I know other people with like soccer backgrounds who played soccer and had clubs or other interests. Ultimate frisbee, but you just took it to a whole other level with <laughs> mountaineering and bringing this this group of indigenous women to to climb this peak that had never been done before. In uh, just everything was, that, it, that that came out of that, wow. Yeah, it was, you know, it was crazy. And it was one of those things that it happened at the end of my service. You know, this wasn't something, you know, trust had to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Credibility, um, you know, it was definitely one of those things that they had been pushing for doing something like this. And I actually felt like, no, that's like, so Western of, you know, how can we do that? You know, that just... I didn't want it to ever come off like I was pushing them into something. and really waited and waited. Um, and like I said, I had doubted their ability as well as my own to be able to do something like this. But the only reason I doubted their ability was because they hadn't had any experience mountaineering, but they were up at 4 a.m. at the crack of dawn carrying like 100-pound sacks of potatoes on their back at 9,000 feet elevation, working very hard, Um very strong women. And I said, all right, if we're able to do some of the training around it, maybe, maybe this can work. But I think once we took away the goal of, we need to summit, it was just, we need to attempt. So -hmm. again, I'm a big one on focus on effort, not outcome, kind of like the girls and their participation in school. It's like, we don't have to summit just the fact that we're coming together and we're going to give it a try even if we get a hundred meters up on the glacier, if someone gets altitude sick or it's not, it's it's okay. It was still the first ever attempt. We can focus on that. And I think once we let go of those results and those outcomes, next thing you know, they're hauling us up the mountain. And and, then there we are um, about eight hours later on the summit, um, which, which was pretty incredible, but it was a big, lesson learned for me, you know, in life as well, when we put some expectations on ourselves or these hard goals and results, um, sometimes it's better just to focus on, you know, the ability to try and, and that effort and evaluate ourselves on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And you, you spoke to some of the changes that came out of this uh, expedition six months later, but it's been it's been 20 years. Have you seen that continue from, from that and other work that you've done in your community, just the, the lasting effects that have trickled throughout uh, the years? Yeah, I have two examples that I can share. Um, Rosalena, one of the women on the expedition, she was one of the women that when she was a little girl was pulled from school and sent to the big city to work as a maid. So she was forced to drop out of school 
And she was the woman who went on to become the first female president of her community after the ascent. And about 10 years later, she went back to night school and she got her elementary school degree. So um, like equivalent to like a sixth grade education. So she's increased or improved her literacy and put herself, you know, as she's working full time, she put herself through school and her daughter, Paulina, um, who's like still in my life, both of them. And is like my little sister, she went on to become one of the first females to graduate high school, go on to college. After she graduated her undergrad, she, you know, she got a degree actually in bilingual Quechua Spanish education that was non-existent years ago. And she actually wrote her first book at 23 and won an award. This is crazy, Tyler. She got an award from the Ministry of Culture. And seven years later now, she just got her master's degree in cultural studies. So, you know, I know when we're in Peace Corps, you know, there's so much around. You're not going to see a lot of stuff within your two-year experience that things happen over time and change happens over time. Um I happen to just be in touch with my family 20 years later. So I get to hear about all these amazing things that they continue to do and they never let go of. Um, and Paulina was one of the little girls whose parents did say, we will keep her in school. We will educate her. So she will have more of these opportunities where some of the other little girls that didn't play out, that didn't actually happen. Doesn't mean they're not happy and doesn't mean they're not living fulfilling lives. Um, but you know, having that education is granting Paulina a couple more opportunities than, you know, some of her peers. But I'd say those are um, two, you know, of the uh, of, of the examples that would stand out to me um, many, many years later, for sure. And those are two amazing examples. And yeah. just how, how cool it to to stay connected with them and really see the change because as you said you as serving as a volunteer for those 2 years a lot of the impact really doesn't come to fruition within those 2 years it's a lot of you know sowing those seeds to really see what what is going to come about years later exactly exactly and um and i think it goes back to you know that one pivotal moment where i kind of just let go of having a structure and a plan and these end goals. And it was like, all right, girls, you lead me, you tell me what I need to do. And I'm just going to listen and learn from you all. And it was just such a powerful lesson. And, you know, something I really apply in life because, you know, sometimes we get so fixated on what we think needs to happen. And sometimes that's just not going to (laughs) happen. So, you know, I'm grateful um, for them. And, you know, one of the first words I learned in Quechua is wardmi, which means women. Um, so I'm grateful for the wardmis for, you know, teaching me that. Um, and, you know, with one of Peace Corps' goals of having, you know, that cross-cultural exchange and being able to bring that back. And, you know, there's so much I learned from them, from the wardmis that I did bring back. Um, and I do apply in, in life and even in my career now. Um so yeah, when you're in it and you're in the Peace Corps, it's hard to see some of the things that may come later in life, for sure. Mm-hmm. And post-Peace Corps, 
I know uh, from just talk, talking with you beforehand and the pre-interview questions, you didn't necessarily leave Ecuador, come back to the United States and, and start life here. You you stayed in Ecuador. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and, and your involvement, continued involvement with the Peace Corps? Yeah. Yeah. So I left for a little bit. I went down to Argentina and with my best friend, Kate, and we climbed Aconcagua first. We were like, we got to end our two years and have kind of a, a really amazing climb and did this expedition um, down south, came back to the States and was struggling a little bit because I felt like it took so many years, like a good three years to really like hit that sweet spot of pick up the language skills, feel effective, um, gain that credibility. And then I'm like back in the States. I'm like, how do I utilize these newfound skills? Like, what am I going to do next? And I think that's what thousands of people, you know, return Peace Corps volunteers struggle with. And I knew I wanted to get a master's and I wound up researching programs in Latin America. And I found a master's in public health in Ecuador and they had partnered with um, GW University, like in the States. So it was the University of San Francisco de Quito that offered the MPH, the master's in public health, but did a partnership with GW. So I said, all right, let me, let me give this a shot. But the, the pricing was Ecuador. So I said, all right, even better. I won't go into debt over a master's degree. (laughs) And I took another leap of faith and I moved back down there and I did my master's in public health. And um, I loved it because it had a strong focus on international help, a lot of field work, a lot of work in the communities. Um, and I really was able to take my Peace Corps experience and the work I was doing there and apply it, um, you know, with this master's. And when I finished that up, Peace Corps was actually hiring and they needed a technical trainer for their rural public health program. Um, and I had a unique skill set. You know, I had the background working with Quechua communities and you had the perfect skill set. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, had a master's in public health and, you know, had just just was in the right place at the right time. And um, I got hired for a short term position. I loved it. One of my favorite jobs ever. And it wound up taking me to work with Peace Corps Peru and working with their youth development training program. So I was loving being this technical trainer and I bounced back and forth with Peru and Ecuador and then a position open with Peace Corps to be like a project, a program manager where Mm -hmm. you um, like develop, I don't know what it's called now, but where you, you do like the site development and you manage the volunteers and, and um, whatnot. And, I did that a few years and then the director of programming and training position opened up um, and I competed and I got that position and that was 17 years later, Tyler. So again, never had planned on staying that long, um, was never very clear on the type of work I'd wind up doing, but I just loved, loved, loved the work and just mm-hmm. kept following like the passion and the work and um, really enjoyed it. And um it, it wound up becoming my career without ever really intentionally planning it. Um, so I feel quite lucky. Um, and again, a lot of the things I tried to do when working with Peace Corps was creating tools, policies, practices that were lacking back in the day, um, you know, when I was serving where, um, 
we did we did have to just figure things out and whatnot. But I did feel that there was a couple new tools we could be building into the toolkit um, to help volunteers um, adapt, learn some of the community needs and priorities, and uh, make it more competitive. Really make some of the communities. Um, demonstrate their interest and motivation on having a volunteer and how they'd work with them before just getting a volunteer. Um, so we were able to do some of that good work and um, felt pretty good about the placements we were making when we had uh, volunteers. Mm-hmm. And what an amazing service that you provided these, these volunteers, having someone who uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer, but also served in the same country, had this background and understood a lot of the things that they were going through. Because, yeah, when I was in Peace Corps, we had people that were RPCVs, but they didn't serve in Burkina. They definitely were many years removed from their service. So there was, a, yeah. I feel at times, a disconnect. But, I mean, for you, it was pretty fresh, and you had never really left, and you really understood a lot of the inner working. So I think you probably made a lot of volunteers lives much better. I think, you know, it, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause when, when you're on the inside looking out, you know what I mean? It, it really can help like serving at the grassroots level and then being in a position where you're help working on policy and, and design. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. And I think we just had such an amazing staff, Peace Corps, Ecuador as well, that, um, they were so motivated and committed also to service and to the community. So it was like definitely having the, the dream and being able to work with them and a great supervisor. We were able to do some good, you know, do some good work. Um, and obviously can't please every volunteer because, you know, half the battle is the mindset and the volunteers got to meet you halfway. So, um, you know, it didn't work out for everybody, but I think for the folks who came in with the right mindset, the ability to fail and learn again. Um, you know, we were trying to set them up for success the best that we could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And through, through all your experiences, uh, being a volunteer and continued with the Peace Corps, do you have any lessons that you've taken with you that you also feel maybe important to, to share with the listeners? I've got a lot of people who listen that are definitely interested in the Peace Corps. I always get messages telling me, you know, I applied to the Peace Corps all because of your podcast and people getting accepted and sharing that with me. And then also a bunch of people who are in it right now, sitting in village, listening to this podcast. So w- what words of wisdom do you have for, for those people? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. I think for me, um, one of the biggest takeaways or lessons learned was work with those that show up. Like, even if you're expecting Mm -hmm. this large group, even if it's one or two, go for it. These are your informal leaders. These are the future. These are the motivated people. And they have that ability to mobilize others. I so many times would cancel a meeting because it was just a few of the little girls who would show up and none of the women were showing. And these little girls showed up. I said, sorry, canceled. No one's here today or there's not enough people. And I think like I shared earlier, that aha moment was, oh no, they are right under your nose. So my advice would be work with those that do show up because it's incredible to see the multiplier effect that they may have. And even if it's planting seeds with one or two individuals, 
hey, you may have the future president right there in the room with you. You never know. So um, don't get down on it. Quality over quantity, you know, really focus in on those that show up. Um, And I think the other one for me was especially culturally coming from where I came from, like just, you know, the ability just like it's okay to slow down in order to speed up later on. That sometimes we feel like we need to go, go, go. We have to report back. We have to show all these results. And the beauty of the the program and Peace Corps gives you that two-year time to really gain trust and integrate in your community and, and, and gain that credibility. And sometimes you got to do it just by like slow down. It's okay if you don't have a chock full load of work right in the moment, okay? That sometimes you just have to sit down and have lunch have soup, you know, that's, we ate a lot of soup in Ecuador um, with the elders or with someone in your community. And it's over that bowl of soup that a connection could be made, trust could be built. um, And then next thing you know, that person wants to partner with you on some bigger initiatives. So slowing down, you know, and you will speed up later on. And um, I think my big one is just, you know, listen, learn and let others lead you. You know, just spending time listening and learning, not trying to push, push, push what we think, what we want, um, or even what Peace Corps tells you need to do. Just listen to the people in your community and learn and uh, let them lead you as well. Don't have this pressure that you need to lead this effort in the community. I think by letting others lead you, it's more of a partnership. It's a little bit more sustainable um, and your true leadership will still come out for sure. Um, but that humility and allowing that space, I, I think it's key. And it's something I think I never planned on. I was never told to, it just happened. Um, and I can say it, it worked well for me and it's something I continue to try to do, you know, in different situations as well. And those are yeah. s- some excellent lessons and advice. And how, how have you, I guess, used those lessons? What, what are you doing now, 20 years later? Yeah, I think the, you know, I think one of the, I still apply the focus on those that show up, even if it's a smaller group. Mm -hmm. So one of the cool things I was able to form, um, I have a background in leadership coaching. So I do a lot of coaching now today um, with women and I do a lot of workshops and retreats. And it's called the Wardney Project, and it's all based on the idea of, you know, the lessons I learned about leadership from the Wardneys. And, you know, with that, it's evolved where as an athlete, I've now um, partnered with this amazing woman. She's a professional triathlete, one of the world's fastest female Ironman racers. Her name's Rachel Joyce. And together, we've been um, doing these retreats and workshops where we like share tools with women on how to crush their goals and live outside their comfort zone. And as we got started up the past year, it was the same thing like, Oh, we don't have a full house. We don't have a ton of people coming. What should we do? Do you cancel? No, we work with those that show up and you know, if it's a small group. They get even more attention and it's pretty amazing to see when you do focus your energy on just those few people, how that can popcorn. And again, Domino, um, which is actually, they've helped us grow the business too and get the word out and more and more women wind up, you know, interested in working with us and, and, um, 
you know, showing up to be involved with the work we're doing. So I think that would be one that um, just focus on those that do make the effort to, to be around you and work with you. They're well worth it, even if it's one to two, uh, for sure. And um, that would be, yeah, that would be a big one. And always listening and learning and, you know, letting others lead me and taking the wheel when I need to as well um, with the work I'm doing now. I work now as um, deputy director for an AmeriCorps program called the National Civilian Community Corps. So we're based out of um, Denver, Colorado, and I have nine states in my portfolio and a couple hundred volunteers, not volunteers, we call them core members. And, you know, I oversee a lot of their training in the area of leadership development and then the service projects they serve on during their AmeriCorps term. So the same listen, learn um, on their experiences and, and, you know, the direction and opportunities we can take to make our programming better, as well as the amazing team and staff I get to work with. Um, so definitely, yeah, just just not being so set in, in, in doing things one way or the way I think it should go, but really having that ability uh, to read the cues, listen, ask for that feedback and apply it. Yeah. Well, you have had uh, an amazing, you had an amazing Peace Corps service, an amazing career with Peace Corps, and you're continuing to do awesome, amazing things. I'll definitely include uh, links in the show notes uh, to the Warming Project if any of the listeners, any of the the women RPCVs, Peace Corps volunteers want to find out more and maybe uh, get involved in, in, in what you're doing. I'll have links to all that stuff so people can easily find it. Uh, Thank you for taking some time to to sit down with me and and talk about your service. I know uh, sometimes it's it's hard to pick and choose what are all the things that I'm going to talk about. Uh, this podcast is probably longer than most returned Peace Corps volunteers get to talk about their service at any one go, but it's still not long enough. Uh, is there is there anything else that you want to share with us uh, before we close out the show? Just a big thank you again to you and the work you're doing. Um, I wish back then, you know, I would have been able to be listening to all these stories of Peace Corps volunteers around the world and what they're doing and their trials and tribulations. And it's the beauty of technology right now, you know, that you can share this and and kind of be that, um, you know, spark that for so many others. So just thanks for the work you're doing and for the invitation to be here today. I really enjoyed it. It is absolutely my pleasure, my honor to to t- to take up this role and and serve in this capacity as a return volunteer. Uh, to close out the show, do you have a favorite quote or local saying that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I'll say it in Spanish and then in English. So juntas vamos más lejos. Basically, the African proverb, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So that's one that really sticks with me from my experience. And, you know, at this point in life, um, I try to partner and work with others so we can actually go further together versus just going really fast all by myself. So um, it's a powerful one for me and one that, you know, wanted to share with you guys. I think that is absolutely perfect. I feel that it encapsulates your service, what you did after your service, and what you're doing now with the Warmy Project. I don't think you could have picked a more perfect 
local <laughs> saying to share with us. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tyler. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show so you get a new episode every single Tuesday when I release them. Also, if you are a current return Peace Corps volunteer who has a story to share, head on over to MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. Over at the top, uh, if you're on a desktop, you'll see the Share Your Story. Uh, If you are on mobile, it'll be nested within that mobile menu. Just click that button, fill out the form, and I will be in touch with you. I look forward to hearing your story, and I look forward to hearing from you, whoever you are, the listener. Please reach out. Uh, Connect with me on Instagram. Drop me one of those reviews on Apple Podcasts. Send me a carrier pigeon or maybe a dove, a symbol of Peace Corps, whatever you want to. I just love hearing from you guys. But until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? What's yours?